Father, we thank you for all of your goodness to us. We know that you're on the throne, that you are God, and we can rest in you. It's really good to be able to rest in you. We know that you have a plan to, de- to defeat the enemy, to thwart his plans, and that you want to use us to reach the lost for Christ. And so we ask, please use us. Open up doors. Give us opportunities to share even what we're going to learn this morning. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord, let them see how good you are and draw them to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, page 575 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And we are at this section I'm entitling, How Can I Be Saved? You know the Coast Guard? Yeah? I looked up their uh, mission statement. Here's their mission statement. To ensure our nation's maritime safety, security, and stewardship. So what they want, what they're meant to do is to secure our nation's sea waters, coastal waters, right? Uh, from, uh, so for safety, if somebody starts drowning or whatever or gets in trouble, you know, in a boat or something, right? Security and stewardship to secure us from bad people coming in, trying to bring drugs in or, or trying to, you know, terrorists or this or that or whatever, right? So that's what they're supposed to do, Coast Guard mission, The idea is they are there to rescue us. And if someone is in trouble, to save them, okay? Now, the word salvation or save, the basic meaning of that word is to rescue. You have sozo, which is the verb. You have soteria, which is the noun. And they both just entail that idea of rescue. Rescue from trouble. Rescue from drowning is what the Coast Guard is going to rescue people. What was that movie out that was about the Coast Guards? Remember that movie? What was that? What was the name of it? You guys need to get out a little more. What? The Guardian. Whoever said that behind a mask. There we go. (laughs) I heard it from that way, yeah. Okay, The Guardian, yeah. Yeah, great movie, great movie. That idea, uh, rescuing, okay? Now, they save people physically and protect people from bad elements. But what we're gonna see is there's also an even greater salvation that needs to take place, and that is spiritually to be saved from our sin. What is the most important question in life? Now you think about that. Is it, should I get Papa John's or Little Caesars today? <laughs> I hear their stock is going up because they're doing well, so they, apparently others would agree with Matthew on Papa John's. But no, that's probably way down here, right? The most important question we could ask is answer, is the question that we're seeing in our passage, how can I be saved? Now, it's about this guy who's a rich, young ruler. How would you like to be a rich, young ruler? 
How'd you like to be rich? Okay, that's first question. Sounds pretty nice, right? Okay, how would you like to be young? For those of you who are a little older, this becomes very meaningful, you know, because as you get a little older, you get some pains, and after you went golfing, you get this, oh, yeah, you got it, okay? You know, like most people my age, I'm 59. <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, boy. You got it. That's good. <laughs> okay or a ruler, leader, etc. But what if a rich young ruler, you were a rich young ruler without Jesus? Would it be worth it? Most important question you could ask is how can I be saved? Let's look at our passage, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Peter began to tell him, Look, we've left everything and followed you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture, which I think is sad because we dare not get this passage wrong because it answers the question, how can I be saved? So let's look at it. In verses 17 through 22, we see that the rich young ruler got it wrong. Now, our passage only says he was rich. But there are two other, Matthew and Luke, also record this instance. And Matthew calls him young, and Luke calls him a ruler. That's how we get from a composite uh, of, of all three passages. He is a rich young ruler. Let me read from Jerry Vines. 
He says, don't make the mistake of thinking that because you have material things, because you are young, because you are a morally good person, you have everything you need in this life. You very well might not. Now, I want us to notice the question. The question that the rich young ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, now that's the question he asks, but what is he saying? Well, we know from the context, Jesus answers and speaks about this. If you skip to verses 24 through 26, we see that he brings up the kingdom of God. It's hard to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, He says it again in verse 24. It's hard to enter the kingdom of God. Then skip down to verse 26. They were even more astonished, saying, then who can be saved? You see, all three are saying, speaking of the same thing. To be saved, to enter the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life is all the same thing. It is to be saved and have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we see the question that's being asked. He's asking, how can I be saved? Okay. Now, in verses 18 through 21, we want to notice Jesus' answer. That's kind of interesting because there's a little sidelight here where he calls Jesus good, and Jesus says back to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Now, that's an interesting thing because at first light you might think, oh, wow, he's saying he's not good. But Jesus didn't say that, did he? Because we know that Jesus is good, don't we? In fact, we know that Jesus is perfect, that he never sinned, which means he's actually saying he's God, isn't he? Now, the rich young ruler probably wouldn't have caught that at this moment, but looking back at it after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the greater knowledge that we have of the, from the, the New Testament, we can see very clearly he's claiming to be God. <laughs> Jesus is God, and he is good. But let's look at how he answers the question. In verses 18 through uh, 21, uh, verses 18 through 20, we see that Jesus is appealing to the Old Testament way of salvation. Now, uh, when, yeah, because at first, once again, people can misunderstand this. If you look at verse 18, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. And then he lists six commandments, the commandments that deal with our relationship with each other, okay? The last six commandments of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 20. And you're thinking, is he saying we're saved by obeying the commandments? And that's not at all what he's saying. What he's actually doing here is he's appealing to the Old Testament way of salvation. Now, here's how they understood salvation, how they were supposed to understand salvation in the Old Testament. You were saved by grace. The people of Israel were called to be God's people simply by grace alone. They were born into it, really, okay, uh, as the children of Abraham. And so they had this covenant. It was an unconditional covenant, actually, to be a part of the Jewish people. So they were born into this. It was by grace alone, and they were supposed to recognize it wasn't because they were good that they were called the people of God. 
okay? Now, God did say, and he gave them the covenant with Moses and said, I want you to obey these laws because God gives us his laws for our own good. We're supposed to obey his laws, okay? But not to be saved, you're already saved by being one of his children, by one of his people, okay? But you are to obey him, and if you don't obey him, if you sin, you had the sacrificial system given to them. They had it given to them in order to, that's how they receive forgiveness. Once again, by grace, not by them doing good works, but rather by trusting in God's provision from the sacrificial system. Now, we know from a New Testament perspective that that Old Testament sacrifice pointed to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that his death is really what brings about the forgiveness of sins, even for the Old Testament people. If you study the book of Hebrews, you'll see that. Okay. So we see here, he's actually appealing to the Old Testament way. But by the time of Jesus, many of the Jews, especially the Pharisees, misunderstood this. And they did form a salvation by works theology. They believed that they, were, they got in by grace, but they stayed in by being good. And that's works. That's what they began to believe, but that's not what the Old Testament taught. They misunderstood. And Jesus is probably prodding him here because notice his initial question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he just said, well, you know the commandments. Yep, done them all. Wow. Probably should be a little more humble about that. Okay, but he probably was pretty good. And it even says that Jesus loved him. He saw that, yes, this person does have a desire to do what's right, and that's not bad, right? Okay, so, but it's still, what must I do? We need to recognize the difference between do and done. To do, when we focus on to do, what should I do to get saved or to stay saved or whatever. When we focus too much on do, we get doo-doo. Okay? We need to recognize from beginning to end, it's what has Jesus done? Even in the Old Testament, what has God done for us? And we see the difference here, and he's probably wanting to prod him in that direction. Because I will say, uh, it is possible to enter heaven by obedience alone if you never personally sin. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. This might sound heretical, but you'll understand when I finish. Romans chapter 2. Verses 6 through 11, another passage that has got several, many people off on the wrong track because of a misunderstanding. But look what he, Paul says. He says, he will repay each one according to his works. 
Eternal life, that was the original question, remember, back in our passage. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for There is no favoritism with God. And so here he is saying, if you are good, but remember, it has to be perfectly good. That means without one single bad, you will get in. But then he goes on. And you have to see it in the context in the book of Romans, because chapter 1, he already pronounced Gentiles as guilty. Chapter 2, he's pronouncing Jews as guilty, and he sums it all up in chapter 3. If you want to just skip over to chapter 3, verse 9. What then are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Everyone's guilty. Yes, you could get there if you were perfect, but nobody is. And so he then goes on and presents the gospel In verse 21 on, we see this incredible teaching of the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But we have to recognize our guilt, and that is something that this man, this young man, did not recognize, tragically. And so, in verse 21... Jesus is revealing where the man missed it. Look at verse 21, back in Mark chapter 10. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said, you lack one thing. And then he mentions two. But he really is only mentioning one thing. This is what we, once again, we dare not miss this. One thing. You lack one thing. Go, sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. The one thing he was missing was following Jesus. But he had to repent of his sin that was keeping him from following Jesus. And Jesus points out his sin here. Jesus is saying, repent of your greed so you can embrace me, follow me. That's what real faith is. That's what he's calling them to. Repentance is necessary for salvation. We dare not miss this point. There are those, even in Christian circles, who say that repentance is not a part of the gospel, and they have to twist Scripture right and left to make that point because let's look and see what Jesus actually said. Go ahead and look at Luke chapter 24, verse 27. It's just the next book over. Okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Okay, Luke chapter 24, the very last part of Luke, Jesus has 
been crucified and risen from the dead and one of the last things he says as in Luke's rendition of the uh, Great Commission, he says this in verse 47, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. You cannot be forgiven of your sins unless you repent. Repentance is necessary for salvation. It's the prerequisite of real faith. To be able to trust in Christ, to forgive you of your sins, you have to want to be forgiven of your sins. You want to be rescued from your sins. That's what repentance is. Is. We see Peter picked up on this. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter presents the gospel to a very large crowd in which 3,000 of them actually end up getting saved. Well, when he finishes the gospel, this is the response, chapter 2, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Does that sound similar to our question with the the young ruler here? What should I do? What should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see that repentance is absolutely essential for salvation. The man, the rich young ruler, made a very shallow examination of his heart. He didn't see himself breaking any of the commandments towards human beings, but he missed the greatest commandment of all. And that's what Jesus is pointing to him. His, uh, let me read um, Daniel Aiken here. Let me see here. Yes, Daniel Aiken. He explains. He says, having addressed the last six commandments, Jesus now addresses the first. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. God must be God in our lives. No one and nothing can stand between him and us. The particular demand Jesus puts on the rich young ruler is not a general command for all persons. It was specific to him, though it could be specific to some of us too. His wealth occupied the place that only God should have in his life. It was his idol, his God. He may have obeyed, relatively speaking, those commands that address human relationships, but he lived in perpetual disobedience, sin, and idolatry when it came to the first and foundational commandment, do not have other gods besides me. Jesus was calling him to repent. He saw the idol of his riches that he needed to turn from. I remember when I Surrendered to the Lord at age 21, God convicted me of my music as being my idol. I had over 500 albums. You remember what an album was? For young people, it's the same as a cassette. Just kidding. They don't remember that either, do they? <laughs> okay. well, 
big round things. They, they actually have them still. I know that, okay? I had over 500 albums, and I felt like God said to me, there's nothing wrong with this music, but you've made it an idol. I want you to get rid of it. I sold all my albums. Sold them all, and the ones that were the heavy metal satanic ones, I broke. I actually took a bow and arrow, and I shot them and broke them, okay? But the rest, I just I, I sold for like 50 cents a piece or something. Just got rid of them. Immediately got rid of my albums because I only wanted Jesus. I didn't want anything coming between me and the love of my life. And so that's what he's calling this man to, repentance. Um, I have a little note here. You don't brag about your goodness. You turn from your badness. You don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane. You don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. You don't claim equality with Einstein because you can write H2O. And you don't boast about your goodness in the presence of the perfect one. And that's what he was doing. He needed to repent and then have faith. But it's faith which includes surrender. Faith which includes surrender is necessary for salvation. That's why Jesus didn't say, just say this little prayer and you'll get saved. You'll never see that anywhere in the Bible. Say this little prayer, and you'll get saved. Never, not once, anywhere. Jesus, he always said, follow me. That's how he invited people to eternal life, to salvation. Follow me. That's real faith. The Bible teaches this. Romans 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means you're confessing he's your Lord, your master. You're surrendering to him as Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's not a work. It's simply a trust in him instead of yourself from now on with your life. That's faith. And that's what he's calling him to. That's what he's calling this man to. But sadly, verse 22, the man did not get saved. It says, but he was dismayed by this demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. And so after this, Jesus ran after him. And he said, no, 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 I was just kidding. You just got to say this little prayer. He didn't do that. He let this man go to hell. That's the sorry, sad, tragic, and I know he was grieved. Jesus was grieved because it says he loved him. But you must repent and place your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation before you can be saved. Money had become the center of his identity. To lose his money would have been to lose himself. Just because something is your identity doesn't mean it's right. People are saying that today a lot. This is my identity. 
God is calling us to repent. Jesus calls us to lose ourselves. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will gain it. That's how Jesus presented the gospel. Now, that's the tragic scene. And then in verse 23 through 31, we see the blessings of getting it right. We saw that the rich young ruler got it wrong. But let's now look at the blessings of getting it right. In verses 23 through 27, we see that wealth can hinder us from getting saved. That's where Jesus goes on. We've already read the passage, but you see here, he says how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Notice the disciples' response. They were astonished at his words. And he repeats it. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to one another, then who can be saved? Wealth can hinder us from getting saved Let me read from James Brooks' commentary. He says, Jesus did not teach that wealth is evil. He did not teach that poverty is better than riches. He did not teach that only the poor can be saved. He did teach that discipleship is costly and that wealth often is a hindrance to repentance and acceptance of the gospel. And so wealth can hinder us from getting saved. The disciples, in their bewilderment, are actually showing that they believed in the false teaching of retribution theology. Now, i got to give you a little bit of theology. It would be good for me to be a pastor and not teach you some theology every now and then, right? Okay. Retribution theology was the belief that if you did good, God blessed you. If you did bad, God cursed you. And that was the law. Okay? Now that's actually a principle found in many of the Proverbs. A principle that does work out at times in our lives, but considering everything, that this world is not our home, that we have a devil who hates us, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that, that's not always true. That, but they believed that This retribution theology that if you did good, God did good for you. Therefore, if God is doing good to you, you must be good. The rich young ruler had it made, so he must be good. See how that works? But if you do if you are you do bad, then God is going to curse you. Now, fortunately, God gave us a couple books in the Bible to get rid of and to, and to expose this bad theology. And that's the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Job reveals that sometimes bad things happen to good people. That bad things happen, and it's not because you're bad. It's because you live in a broken world and there is a devil. That's what we see. Job had not done anything wrong, yet all this bad stuff happened to him. And in the end, we discover in that book that what Job really needed was not answers to his questions, but he needed the presence of God. And when he got the presence of God, he was satisfied. That's the 
the answer there. And so, but these guys had embraced it because the Pharisees had embraced this idea. And they all had embraced this. That's why they're astonished. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If he's rich, he's got to be good. So if he can't make it in, none of us can because we're not as good as them. See his problem, their problem with retribution theology? And Jesus is addressing that. Okay, that is bad theology. In our day and age, we have what's called prosperity theology. It's very similar. Okay, but it's wrong. What we do want to learn is that stuff can get in the way. Stuff, so it might not be riches. You need to ask yourself, what's getting in your way? Stuff can get in the way in vines, commentary he says Jesus was saying that it's easier to take that camel humps and all and drive it through the eye of a needle than to try to get to heaven without Jesus you had just as well try to ride a Georgia mule to the moon as to get to heaven without Jesus a Georgia mule An elephant on roller skates could get to the moon faster than you will get to heaven without Jesus. Jesus, that's what we all need. That's what we're to see here. Stuff can get in the way. Now, Brooks uh, says it a little less crassly, I suppose. He did not teach that poverty... Oh, wait a minute. Is that the right one? Nope, wrong one. I already read that one. The teaching of Jesus was nonetheless revolutionary in its time and remains scandalous even today. However, Jesus did not condemn riches as evil in themselves. They are a temptation, a hindrance, a diversion. They provide false security that makes radical trust in God difficult. The contrast between the largest Palestinian animal and one of the smallest openings is clearly intended to indicate the impossibility of a rich person or anyone else entering the kingdom by doing something for himself or herself. So our question is, what sidetracks you from following the king? Mark Rutland said, a kingdom is not a kingdom without a king. In the mad dash to the blessing table, the church must remember exactly who is Lord there. Whenever our will is done, we live in our kingdom. When his will is done, we live in his. But I love Jesus' response to them. Nothing is impossible for God. With man it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. Do you know how powerful God is? He can create a universe with a word. Genesis chapter 1. He can heal a man born blind, John chapter 9. He can turn the heart of the most wicked of men, Proverbs 21, 1 and John 6, 44. He can save you. That's how powerful our God is. So, Peter, verse 28, we see that he asks some, some more questions. <laughs> like, okay, we followed you. 
<laughs> and we see that God takes care of his kids. The response, truly I tell you, Jesus said, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a 100 times more now at this time houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. God takes care of his kids. You leave a little, you get a lot. You may have to lose family, friends, etc. Compromising the truth so as not to lose family, friends, or potential converts is counterproductive. One of the blessings is persecution. So we dare not compromise the truth because we actually do care about the lost. Then he summarizes at the end the summary of the situation, verse 31. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Daniel Aiken puts it together. He says, verse 31 is another hinge verse connecting and contrasting the rich young ruler with the servant of the Lord Jesus. Again, the value system of this present evil age is turned on its head. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine life without money. All you have is me. Am I really enough? Do you truly believe the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything? That is the question Jesus puts before this man. It is the same question he puts before us. How will you respond? When I was 21, I had it made. I had everything you could want in life, it seemed, at the time. But I knew that my life was living a life of sin and that that was not good and that God was calling me to himself and that I would have to forsake it all. And so I did. And I'm here to tell you, I've never looked back. And I have found for I don't know how many years now he is enough, more than enough. Wow, I hope that each of you find that too. Is he enough? If your prayer isn't answered, will you still follow? If you lose a precious loved one, will you drift away? If the whole world comes crashing down and you're buried in the rubble, will you still be on fire for Jesus? Do you love God? Are you saved? Let's pray. There's no greater question, Lord, and all we can say is thank you for your grace that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross that our sins could be forgiven. You paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And you simply call us to repent, to say, I'm sorry, I wish I wouldn't have done it. I don't want to live like that anymore. Please save me from my sin. 
And then we place our faith in Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, and we're completely saved. Born again, we enter the kingdom of God. Hmm. What an incredible plan, Lord. Thank you. If there's anyone here, if there's anyone listening, watching on TV, draw them to yourself now. I pray in Jesus' name.